All right. Well, uh, today we are moving uh, from the, in terms of the ordinary means of grace, we're moving from the Word of God, which we spent quite a bit of time on, and hopefully you enjoyed that. Last week we introduced uh, the second part, as we traditionally list them, of the ordinary means of grace, that is the sacraments. And so if you weren't here and you missed that, you can go back and catch that on our, our YouTube channel or on, on our audio, on our website. Uh, but essentially what I did is introduce, uh, using the Shorter Catechism, what is a sacrament? And, um, and in that, we studied what we understand the sacraments to, do, to be. And of course, uh, as Protestants, we understand uh, the sacraments to be different than uh, Roman Catholics. Uh, we narrow the sacraments down to uh, two ordinances given to us specifically by Christ. And we distinguish those as New Testament sacraments as opposed to Old Testament sacraments. And those are terms that you're going to want to be familiar with as we look at, for example, baptism as understanding that God did, in fact, give sacraments in the Old Testament. Uh, but within the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we see that God has given and Christ has instituted specific sacraments as we understand as New Covenant sacraments. And the first one of those that we are going to study, uh, of course the two are baptism and the Lord's Supper, the first that we're going to look at is baptism. And so what I want to start with is a question that I, I always wonder and, and, and maybe you have wondered as well, and that's the question of where did baptism come from? Because think about this. When you're reading your Bible, if you're reading through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, it can almost seem like when John is introduced and he's baptizing, well, it, can, it can almost seem like it, it's just come out of the middle of nowhere. I mean, where did this where did this come from, and and what made John think that baptism was a good thing, and why were the people so accepting? We don't see any pushback, any conflict, except from the Pharisees, which I'll talk about. Uh, but it, it seems as if it was readily accepted. Uh, and while uh, we always want to be careful making an argument for, from silence, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think that it's a fair assumption uh, that the people were accepting of it, as if they had known of it, so to speak. And so where did baptism come from? Well, the first place that we encounter baptism in the New Testament is, as I said, with John the Baptist, or literally translated from the Greek, uh, probably would be better called John the Baptizer, but John the Baptist, and it says in Scripture, in those days, John the Baptist, I believe this is from, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 3, uh, that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he starts out preaching, and then from his preaching, it says, and they were baptized by him, the meaning the people who had come out to him, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we, we see there, there's something uh, that it's telling us about this particular baptism of John. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And then he goes on in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3 to say, I baptized you with water for repentance. So you pause there for just a second. If, if you had no Christian background, if you had no understanding whatsoever of what baptism is, meaning like you're reading the Bible and you have to get the dictionary, look up baptism, at that point contextually, we now know, okay, so baptism has to do with water. And somehow it's connected to John's preaching. And somehow his preaching is directing people to repent. So there's some sort of connection for John here. Verse 11 goes on to say, And he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we are told that, the baptism, that baptisms occurred... That's stated. But one thing that we don't find in the Gospels is we are not told where they originated. Look through the four Gospels to confirm this. If you doubt what I've said, we don't find where it comes from at all. There's no story of origination. Baptism, then, is not presented as something new. And yet oftentimes, people will think of it that way. Oh, baptism is this thing that John the Baptist invented, and it starts out here in the New Testament, and it's this newfangled thing. And well, That's not, if you just do a close reading of the Gospels, that's not really how we see it. And so the question becomes, were there baptisms in the Old Testament? You think there for a second, and you think, I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember there being like a John the Baptist guy. I don't remember the river of Jordan. Explicitly, John? You mean like, like what we're seeing in, in that Matthew chapter 3? Well, part of the issue is translation. Let me give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, we see that Hebrews points back to baptisms in the ceremonial law. In fact, it says this, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. According to this arrangement, and pause there for just a second, the writer of Hebrews contextually in chapter 9 is talking about the ceremonial law. He's walking us through the way that the priest worked in the temple and the way things were done underneath those ceremonial practices he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, one of the benefits of knowing the original language is in helpful places like this. The term that is used here in Hebrews chapter 9 is translated various washings. And that's not a bad translation. But we need to know that the word translated washings is the exact same word that is used when it describes John's baptisms. And so we see here in translation sometimes, the tra and I've talked to you about this before as, as a class in how the nuance of translation works, is the translators translating into English are trying to describe something that is describing a cleansing and yet have chosen 
to use uh, a word that is derived from the Greek directly by using the word baptism. And so we see sort of a disconnect between Matthew and the Gospels and the words baptism and in Hebrews of these washing because it's the exact same Greek word. In other words, various washings mean various baptisms. And so what were these various baptisms? And I'm going to stick with that word for a couple of reasons. Because number one, in the, in, of course our Old Testament was not written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew. But the Hebrew word that we're going to see, uh, and I'm not going to break down for you today, you're just going to have to take my word for it, uh, but the, the Hebrew word that we see is in fact also an interchangeable word, a word that can be used for baptisms and washings. But we also see this, and here's where it becomes very clear for our New Testament. In the New Testament, I mean rather when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and what we call the Septuagint, that translation also used the Greek word for baptism. And so it becomes up to the translator, or originally the reader in Greek, to read this and to understand. What I'm trying to get to help you understand is, is that when we look at the Old Testament, what I'm getting ready to show you is that baptism was not new that there were baptisms in the Old Testament. And when John shows up on the scene, he's doing something that the uh, Jewish people would have gone, whoa, whoa. This man who is in the wilderness, who's preaching the word of God and calling us to repentance, he is doing something that was once upon a time restricted and assigned just to ceremonial practices. And now, now he's calling us to be washed. Now he's calling us to be cleansed. We'll come back to that. Here's what we see in the Old Testament, and I don't, I don't have a, a marker today, but I think I've got this on your handout, and, and Brandon, when he does the video, will, will produce these points. But there are at least... 11 places that we see in the Old Testament baptisms. The first we see with the ordination and installation of a priest. Did I list these on your handout? Okay, great, great. All right, so the first place is we see the ordination and the installation of a priest. And, and in my opinion, and I'm no authority, but in, in my humble opinion, I think this is one of the most clear ones uh, that we see. For example, in Exodus chapter 29, as well as chapter 40, verse 12, it says, you, Moses says you, or God tells Moses, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and baptize them with water. Translated in the ESV as wash them with water, but it's the word for baptism. And, and so Aaron and his sons and the priest after them were all baptized into their ordination. Or you might say in our modern vernacular, their ordination and installation service included baptism. It also says in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 6, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and baptized them, that is, washed them with water. Now again, Pause here for just a second. Ah, thank you. So the first was ordination of priests, right? You have it on your handout, but it makes me feel better. <laughs> uh, 
what we need to, to note here is that this is a ceremonial practice. It's not that Aaron and his sons were like, um, what was the little character in Peanuts that walked around in just a cloud of dust? Pigpen, thank you. Yeah, it's not like, not like Aaron and the sons were pigpen. They're not dirtier than the rest of the Israelites. No, this is a ceremonial cleansing, a ceremonial baptism uh, that carries forth the significance of this ordination and installation. I might add, just to chase, chase a rabbit for just a second, th this is such a serious matter that you'll recall that two of Aaron's sons will be, shortly after this, will be killed by the power of God for not taking their priestly functions very seriously. So this is a, this is a very important matter. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to come back to that um, because the, the, the specification, and not today, I'm going to talk about in either, I think it's next Sunday uh, or the next, about mode of application of the water. Um, there are parts of the use of water within uh, the Old Testament are, are specifically sprinkling, um, a, a sort of, of ceremonial sprinkling of something. We also see that with blood, um, but not exclusively. Uh, sometimes you'll see a, a pouring over and a washing, uh, and so we'll come, we'll come back to that. Um, it, incidentally, probably what we're not going to see is like uh, being submerged in a bathtub. Uh, sort of a thing, which was certainly a cleansing practice for the people of, of Israel, but, but that was actually for cleanliness. Um, so we're not necessarily going to see that in these ceremonial cleansings, but to be specific, the actual word of baptism, apart from context, doesn't tell us mode. So if I, if I could be facetious for just a second, it very well could be that uh, Aaron and his sons were dunked backwards. You know, I doubt it, but it's, it's possible because the, the word doesn't tell us the actual mode. So we don't know. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's why I think it's helpful and why when I'm going through this and, and quoting these verses to you, I think it's helpful for me to use the word baptism instead of washing. Because I think you're right. I think we have a modern idea of, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub, and, and, and instead of a ceremonial practice that carries with it a weight and significance. Yes. Well, it, it is not the same word as anointing, fascinatingly enough. It's going to carry a, a ceremonial significance similar to that, but it's a very distinct word from that. And, and we want to reserve that uh, for that specific application. Yeah, but that's a great question. Secondly, uh, we see it in the purification before entering the temple. A purification before the priest's enter the temple. It says in Exodus chapter 30, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for baptizing. When they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall baptize with water so that they may not die. They shall baptize their hands and their feet so they may not die. And, and again, 
Keep in mind, I'm, I'm intentionally choosing not to use the word that the ESV translates this Hebrew word. I'm intentionally using, but rightly, uh, the word baptized to capture the idea of the ceremonial significance. Um, and again, you, can, you hear very strongly here uh, the use that, that they, they must do this baptizing, that they shall not die. That's how seriously God took uh, this use of water. The third area that we see it is another form of uh, purification, but we'd call it a purification rite for the Day of Atonement. For the Day of Atonement. And here in Leviticus chapter 16, and I think I have in your notes, you can see this in verse 4, you can see this in verse 24, you can see this in verse 26 and 28. It says that the priest shall baptize his body in water for this purification. Yes? Yes. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. When the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Greek in the Septuagint, that's how we, we confirm that, 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 that their, their understanding was the same word. And incidentally, that's where we see it carried over into the New Testament um, in terms of when, when the, the Gospel of Matthew shows up in chapter 3 and it's talking about John's baptism. That's the same word that the translators used in the Septuagint, um, as I mentioned ago. All right, number four is the purification of the heifer sacrifice. So purification uh, for the uh, sacrifice of the, the heifer. Some sac uh, scholars will call this the red heifer sacrifice. But in Numbers chapter 19, it says, Then the priest shall baptize his clothes, baptize his body in the water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall baptize his clothes in water and baptize his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Again, it's, it's a repetition of the, of the same thing. But again, where repetition shows up shows its emphasis. The idea is that it is a ceremonial purification, a ceremonial cleansing for this particular sacrifice. The fifth area that we see it is purification before offerings. For the priest, that is. Purification before offerings. In Leviticus chapter 22, verses 1 through 7, I'm not going to read all this, but specifically it says here, the person who touches such a thing, and then it is listed those things which are defined by God's law as to be unclean. So the person who touches something that is unclean shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has baptized his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward, he may eat of these holy things, etc., etc., etc. And again, the, the idea here is that before entering in, before engaging in this ceremonial practice, this ceremonial cleansing is important. Number six, we see purification uh, for leprosy. Purification for leprosy. And I'm actually going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, but there, uh, and I'm not going to go into it, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, 
you know those chapters in, in the Bible that you never want the elders to read uh, when it's their time to, to read? I've got a few of those that I jokingly say that I'm going to sneakily substitute the passage that they're reading that day. And there's just, you know, so chapter 14 of Leviticus is that one where it's like, you know, when you've got that oozing pus-filled sore on your, and you're just like, you know, the whole four, chapter 14 in your daily Bible reading, like, enough. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, for your pleasure, uh, go read Leviticus chapter 14 today. Um, but in general, the, 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 the repeated theme within that chapter is, you guessed it, baptism by water. Yeah, Randy? Yeah, so, so far, all of these have been for the priestly office. And, and, I, and I want to come back to that in just a second because uh, that, that some scholars argue that's why John's baptism was so offensive to the Pharisees. You think about that. John's out on, in fact, I'll just go ahead and, and touch on it now. John's out in, in, in the, on the Jordan River and he is, he is baptizing people in, in, the, in the Jordan and the Pharisees are like, whoa, that is... That can't be right. That's for this exclusive group right over here and for this exclusive practice. And, 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 and why I think the scholars are right on this is John never says that I am ordaining them for a specific ceremonial rite. What he says is, is this is a picture of the cleansing by repentance. And we're going to talk about how that baptism differs from Christian baptism. John's baptism was a unique and temporary baptism, but we can, we can, we can infer that it was most certainly offensive to, to the Pharisees by virtue of, of their unwillingness to engage and participate in addition to the condition of their heart, their unwillingness uh, to repent. The, the seventh Example that I have for you is purification for eating meat with blood. Eating meat with blood. This is an is oversimplification, but in Leviticus chapter 17, it says, And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beast, whether is a native or a sojourner, and here's where it differs, Randy. Up until this point, all the examples that I've given you deal with the priesthood, but at this point then it says that they are to baptize their clothes. And they are to baptize themselves in water and be unclean until the evening, and then they shall be unclean, so forth and so on. We see this also, and again, another one of those uh, chapters that uh, can be a little uncomfortable to read, and that's Leviticus 15. Not to be outdone by 14, right? Uh, so they're a pair. Um, uh, to put it politely, uh, chapter 15 is the chapter that de deals with uh, reproductive discharges. And, and so we, we witness that. Well, what is in response to that for someone to, to be uh, cleansed, to be able to go into the temple and worship? They must be baptized in water. Uh, eighth, purification. Oh, I didn't list that, did I? Um, wow. How about just discharges? Yeah. 
9. Purification from contact with a dead body. Purification from a dead body. And specifically there, it says that you are to baptize any article of clothing that was in contact with the dead body. And then finally, huh, well I said there were 11. Did I really? I think maybe it was a different kind of discharge maybe. That's what it was. That's right. That's right. Unclean discharges and, uh, yeah, and reproductive. So, you know, read between the lines or enjoy Leviticus chapter 15, and that'll bring you up to speed. All right, so, but the general idea here in each of these examples is that the Israelites would not have seen the use of baptizing with water as something that was foreign, but it would have been a part of their practice. But again, the key here is, is that it's not just, as Keith pointed out earlier, we're not just talking about you know, a good scrubbing with a bar of soap and water. We're talking about ceremonial practices that include water. And <clears throat> we see this uh, in one example and I think is, is very helpful. In 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, we read about, and I know many of you will be familiar with this, this is where, where Naaman, who was the uh, leprous Syrian military leader, he comes to Elisha. And uh, Elisha sent a messenger to him, wouldn't even meet with him, so he's messing with his pride, right? Um, wouldn't even meet with him, sends a messenger and says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now, if you pause there for just a second, there, <clears throat> there is more than one word in the Hebrew language for washing uh, and distinct from baptism. In verse 10, it uses a word that is not later translated as baptize. So, okay, so there's a distinction there. He says, go wash in the Jordan. Now, we know the rest of the story. Uh, his, his Naaman is offended. His pride gets the best of him, but his servants finally talk him into listening to the word of God. And so it says, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. So there's one place, I might add, Keith, where we, we see some form of application of water. According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The word dipped there is, in fact, the word that we translate it as baptize. Now, again, and I, 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 I know I repeat myself on this, so forgive me, um, but remember, in translation from an ancient language like Hebrew, um, it is not a word-for-word -word direct translation. It is a really difficult uh, language to translate out of. So what the translators are doing here is they're trying to capture the context. And they're trying to give us an idea and paint the picture to helpfully describe what's happening here. But nevertheless, in verse 14, we have the same word that is used for baptism. And so washing or baptizing with water meant ritual cleansing from a Jewish perspective. Therefore, John the Baptist's baptism as a 
baptism, and I'm quoting from John, uh, Luke chapter 3, a quote, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins was in keeping with the Old Testament picture of cleansing. In other words, when he's saying this, he said, repent of your sins and be baptized for forgiveness for the Israelite, the picture would make sense. Even though it's foreign to us as non-Jewish moderns, the picture that he's conveying would have been clear. A picture of ceremonial cleansing. So, what do we see then in the New Testament in regards to baptism? And, and what I mean by that is, is John is regarded by Jesus as the last of the Old Testament prophets. John, we see a, a closing of the Old Covenant. And with Jesus, we see the beginning of the New Covenant. And so after John the Baptist's death and at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see baptism taking a new significance as the outward sign of the new covenant people of God. In other words, it's distinct. And, and, and let me pause here for just a second. And um, I'm not going to list any uh, denomination because this actually may have carryover to, to other denominations as well. Uh, but, but some of you may have heard that the reason why we are baptized is because Jesus was baptized by John. And so we're just carrying forward uh, the faithful practice of what Jesus submitted himself to do. Well, that sounds good, but there's no scripture or theological significance to that. Um, in fact, if you study the scriptures, you find that actually New Testament baptism is described very different than John described his baptism. So New Testament or New Covenant baptism is distinct and different from John's baptism. John's was a closing of the covenant, a conclusion of calling God's people to repentance, to uh, forgiveness with this sign and ceremonial cleansing that he was administering. But in the New Testament, we see it begin to take on a deeper and a greater significance in Christ. For, for example, in the Great Commission that I know all of you are familiar with, uh, Jesus commissions his church and he says this, and the beginning is key. The Great Commission actually begins with Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me. And that's key, because what he's saying now is carried forward in the authority of Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we see this commissioning, this sending forth in this new covenant launching of the gospel. Remember, this was so revolutionary that when we get into Acts, the Jerusalem council has to meet to even figure out what do you do with this whole Gentile inclusion thing. Um, you know, they've got to meet and go, oh, I'm not sure, we're a whole bunch of Jewish guys. Uh, what do we do about this, this, this launching of the gospel and evidence that the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of non-Jewish people? So remember, that's the context in which Jesus is giving this, and he's launching it forward, and he's saying, 
This is the sign, and we're going to see and seal, that the new covenant people of God are to receive. Or think about this, on the day of Pentecost... When Jesus was pre, brother, uh, when when Peter uh, was preaching, and the, the the Jewish people and and those who had come in to worship from different countries and different languages, and and at one point they just cry out, hearing uh, that G, uh, his preaching of the gospel. What are we going to do? What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, "Repent, and." Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying there is is that you Jewish people who have looked to your circumcision and your heredity and all of these things that you thought that you were the true children of Abraham The gospel is calling you to repent of your sins and the gospel is calling you to receive the new sign and the new seal of the new covenant upon you. You're receiving this sign as a new people of God and you're receiving it not as the circumcision that God gave through Abraham, but you're receiving it, as it says, in the name of Jesus, which is drawing back from the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And I'm saying you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's saying, this is it. He's the authority. It's in him that this is commissioned. And you're going forward with this. And uh, this is how a new covenant people are to be seen. And so what was once the mark of the old covenant people, and that is circumcision, so all of, all of the Jewish men would have been circumcised just as their ancestors were going all the way back to, and I started to say going all the way back to Abraham, but that's really not true. We're going all the way back to Isaac, because Isaac's the one that was circumcised on the eighth day. Going all the way back, all of the Israelite men would have been circumcised. And in this new covenant era, we see it's no longer required. Circumcision is no longer required for the covenant people of God. And I'm not going to go through this for sake of time, but if you're taking notes... I'm, and I think I've got these on your notes. Uh, let me just list these off real quickly. Uh, there is overwhelming, no doubt about it, scriptural evidence that circumcision ceased at the conclusion of the Old Testament. We see this, for example, in the Jerusalem Council's decision in Acts chapter 15. They send forth the apostles, but not to circumcise. In fact, they stand against it. And we see that again in Galatians. For example, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, we see Paul specifically restricting and not requiring circumcision. We see Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, in which he says, If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why I am still being persecuted? In the case the offense of the cross has been removed. And he goes on and elaborates on why 
circumcision and the Jewish idea of that is contrary to the gospel. And again, the underlying idea there is that in these same churches, Paul is in fact faithful to the command of Christ to administer the new covenant sign, which is baptism. And then in Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so this idea that we are new creations in Christ, and so we receive this sign and symbol of the new creation. Now, with that being said, and I'm going to have to stop here, um, although baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign, as seal, as the mark of God's covenant people, keep in mind that baptism does not lose its imagery. Uh, it still conveys the imagery of washing and of cleansing. But now it serves also as this outward sign for all the world to see the outward sign of God's covenant with them. The testimony of Jesus Christ that He does in fact have all authority in heaven and earth and He conveys this sign and the seal, this mark of the Christian through, uh, through this mark, which is baptism. All right, so we're going to stop there uh, and pick up next week with the question, and we'll drill down to this, uh, of what is baptism? I mean, what is it specifically from a New Testament perspective? How are we to see it? How are we to understand it? What is baptism? We'll start with that next week. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for this brief time to look at the sacraments today. And we thank you for baptism. And we thank you for what it conveys. We thank you for its significance. We thank you that it has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and marks us out as his covenant people. And we pray as his covenant people that we would rejoice in the glory of the gospel that he has given us the freedom that we have from sin and death. And as we are gathered together today in worship, may we be mindful of this truth. May we remember our baptism and what it means and rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.